Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Fresh from Washington, D.C., literary critic, essayist and historical novelist Thomas Mellon gives the skinny on the capital. Sometimes compared to Gore Vidal, who he used to edit at GQ, his novels, including his latest, Finale, a novel of the Reagan years, navigate 20th century U.S. politics and display crisp wit as well as finely grained historical context. Tim Wilson grills the author on the process of massaging facts into a fictional collage and the 2016 battle for control of the White House. We hope you enjoy this session. If politics is rock and roll for ugly people, then Thomas Mellon has spent his life counting the beats of American power. Truman, Dewey, Nixon, Reagan. He's working on a novel, by the way, about George Bush Jr. And frankly, I cannot wait. Mellon catalogues the intricacies, the indelicacies and intrigues of how political muscle is accumulated, exercised and lost in America. The humiliation, rage, self-pity and yet also humanity of Richard Nixon during Watergate. The impenetrable, undeniable but perplexingly triumphant aura of the Reagan administration. Now all of that sounds awfully worthy until you read him. Crikey, Dick, what a writer. The prose is electrified with brio. Mellon describes a character, when Mellon describes a character as having a quadrangular smile, you are at once equipped with everything you need to know about a woman who has had more rich lovers and husbands than you've had hot dinners. I don't really know how many hot dinners you've had, but let's keep moving. It's not just his facility with language. Mellon watches people. He knows what bugs them, He knows what they eat. So you get great scenes, like uh, journalist Christopher Hitchens and uh, Margaret Thatcher playing verbal chess at an an impromptu press briefing. You also learn stuff. You learn that the name of the bullet fired into Ronald Reagan by the assassin John Hinckley was a devastator, a hollow point that was supposed to explode, but didn't. And all of this detail, this agility and observation, is animated by the novelist's twin fuels, imagination and sympathy. For example, Thomas Mellon doesn't just invent an affair for Richard Nixon's wife, Pat. He also portrays the couple as chummy and affectionate after three decades of marriage, which is unexpected, fresh and engaging. Besides being a a fine writer with 16 books in total uh, to his credit, including a non-fiction work on diaries, Thomas Mellon is that rare bird in artistic circles a conservative. I want to know how he does what he does. I want to hear him read, which he'll do, and of course there'll be time for questions. And I, wanna, I want him to answer one, one big question. Donald Trump, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, will you please mel- uh, welcome Thomas Mellon. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, Thomas, so <laughs> most, most writers typically don't write about political figures. What attracted you to presidents and the political realm? I, I loved politics early on. Uh, I mean, my first real political memory was the 1960 race between Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, I was in the fourth grade, turning nine. I went to uh, school every day with a Nixon Lodge button. Lodge uh, being his vice presidential nominee, and the slogan was experience counts. 
which would be the worst political slogan in America this year. Anybody <laughs> who has electoral experience is regarded as suspect. And I used to argue to my fellow nine-year-olds that John F. Kennedy didn't have enough experience to be president. It was a very advanced position for a nine-year-old. But um, I, um, and, and Nixon uh, really was the figure who kind of dominated my imagination. Uh, his wilderness years, as he used to say, uh, when he was out of office and his defeats. Then he was president for the whole time I was at university, uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, so forth. And um, just um, the drama of politics. I mean, the, this for the same reasons that the law... Uh, has always been a subject for fiction. Uh, you know, I mean, Dickens immediately knew that, um, uh, and so many novelists who followed him knew that, uh, you know, a legal case, which was supposed to have a beginning and a middle and an end, unless it was, was John Dice versus John Dice, uh, you know, th that there was a natural narrative arc to that, and uh, elections have winners and losers, and um, uh, there's a whole range of human types in politics from saints to sociopaths. Uh, and, um, and, and you, uh, sometimes they're really hard to, um, uh, it's really hard to tell the difference between them. And, uh, if, um, you know, it, it, it's the worst kind of naivete, I think, to believe that, uh, nobody gets into politics with the intention of doing something good. Uh, there are really, uh, quite a number of such people, um, but the the pressures on them are uh, really preposterous, and but, more than ever now because they're uh, they don't have a private minute anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, they they there's everybody has uh, an iPhone in front of their face. Every remark, uh, unguarded remark, is potentially catastrophic to their careers, and they uh, they don't relate to one another naturally. Um, but it's it's still a, a Washington's an interesting hive to be uh, walking around. And you're cataloging the bees. What I love about um, your descriptions of of people in power are the are the details that you settle on or, or that you present in 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 your books. When, for example, you learn that the uh, and I didn't know this, and I was sort of obsessed with Watergate as a kid, but you learn that the Watergate bagman, Howard Hunt, used to publish short stories in The New Yorker. Yes. You learn that, um, you learn that Jackie Kennedy had smoker's teeth, which ruined her smile. Mm -hmm. How important as a novelist are those details? Oh, I, I think that if they're the things that you wouldn't read about them as public figures, they're, they're especially important because uh, that's what I think makes the reader feel that uh, they're seeing something different. They're seeing these people from an odd angle. They're seeing them uh, close up. Um, it, peculiarly enough, Howard Hunt was one of the few people I've written about whom I actually knew. Uh, one of the Watergate uh, burglars. So, so how did you meet Howard Hunt? I guess that's where uh, this is I, going, right? I, I guess I've got to tell the story. He, um, we went to the same university. He was a, a brown man, uh, as I was, and I met him many years after he had gotten out of prison and uh, was through with Watergate. Um, I met him at a cocktail party given by uh, an old professor of mine, and uh, Hunt had come... Uh, He'd heard my talk and he'd come, and uh, I and was. Just, in... I'll just jump in and explain mm -hmm. for those who who don't know Watergate. Yes. Perhaps Howard Hunt was the guy who was paying off the Watergate burglars. Uh, is that, that that's well? Correct? He was really their organizer. He yeah, and Gordon yeah. Liddy, um, and uh, and Hunt. Um, he was an old CIA man who uh, whose career had kind of foundered on the Bay of Pigs, 
and he did all these dirty uh, tricks for Nixon. And um, I, I, at that time, I was editing, I was the literary editor at GQ, and um, I got him to, since he had, as you say, been a writer, I got him to review Norman Mailer's enormous spy novel, Harlot's Ghost, for the magazine. And uh, we paid very well, and he needed money. And, uh, and he did a very good job of it. And I, um, he, I, he used to write me notes. He was one of these uh, old-fashioned writers who used to warm up at the typewriter in the morning. Uh, and he said, no need to answer this, you know, but, but I had this sheaf of letters from him and so forth. And he was a very odd character. And this was all many years before I wrote about Watergate. And it, I kicked myself because I never really asked him uh, much about it at all. Um, and uh, I, I, I do remember one time um, him telling me, uh, I, I said, do you, uh, you know, are you ever in touch with Colson, who was another brown man who was very in the thick of Watergate and had this redemption, which some people believe and some people don't, became this born-again Christian and so forth. And I said, do you ever hear from Colson? And he said, yeah, he sends me his books all the time and he always inscribes them, yours in Christ, Chuck. And he, and he made this finger down the throat gesture. Um, so it's safe, it's safe to assume they weren't pals. No. And, uh, was, was knowing, having, having knowing, knowing Hunt, um, was that an assistance or an impediment when you came to write Watergate? Uh, I, I'd say a moderate assistance. Uh, I, I, he was hardly an intimate. I didn't really know him well, but it, I, I had a little bit of a sense of how he carried himself and you know how he spoke and so forth. I think that uh, you know if you know somebody too well, uh, it's impossible. Uh, I mean, the other night I was having this thought here. I, there was a party at the beginning of the festival, and somebody took me over. Uh, and said, uh, oh, um, I'd like to introduce you to Andrew Little. And um, I put out my hand, and he said, he's the head of the Labor Party here. I thought, oh, and you're having an election next year, and maybe he's the next prime minister. And I thought, it, it would be kind of fabulous to operate as a political novelist here. You could get to know everybody, uh, because it's you know, much more compact than the States. And then I also thought, maybe it would be impossible for that very reason, because you would know everybody, and... Uh, and you'd have to meet them in the frozen peas aisle at the supermarket, <laughs> and, uh, and then it goes very badly. When you talked about the, the saints and the sociopaths, in, um, in, in who, who I guess are attracted to power, what, because there are lots of different, in your novels, people are drawn to, to power, mm -hmm. to be around powerful people, to become powerful for many different reasons. Is there a, a person, particular personality type? who aims at being powerful? Uh, I don't think it... It's not generally a business that normal people go into <laughs> uh, politics. Um, the, um, I, I do think there is, um, there is this uh, desire for... Um, it, it's a strange business because you think of politicians as people who are supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to lead. And yet... Uh, even if they have a desire to do that, the other thing they're craving is approval. And, you know, to crave somebody's approval is, in effect, to be their follower. Uh, you know, they have the lead over you. And so you see this play out uh, in a lot of personalities, um, this, uh, this desire to be liked, uh, and at the same time, this sense that, uh, no, I'm involved in a business that transcends popularity. It's a much more serious mm. uh, that business demand, than That this. demands respect. Yeah. Because the, the role demands respect, and yet 
the role is predicated on mm. you being particularly in American politics liked. And in some ways, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at somebody like Nixon, who was uh, extremely capable, but extremely damaged psychologically uh, as a child, uh, tuberculosis kind of ravaged uh, the, his family when he was young. And, um, and then he was so scarred by his defeats by the time he got to the presidency. Uh, and he, he once said, I'm an introvert in an extrovert's profession. And so, uh, you know, what is mother's milk to some of uh, these politicians, you know, the ones who love the glad handing, uh, was very hard for him. He was not, you know, backslapping Irish Paul. Um, on the other hand, you know, somebody once asked Reagan, uh, they said, well, how can an actor be president of the United States? And uh, Reagan said, well, I don't know how anybody who wasn't an actor could do this job. <laughs> and I, I mean, he had a point, you know, he, um, he, he knew, he knew when the camera was on. He knew how to hit his mark. Uh, he knew how to cock his head and be very charming, uh, and so forth. And, um, he, uh, he was extremely good at the head of state aspect of being president. You know, there's also the head of government aspect. His record's a little more mixed there. <laughs> but, um, but I, I do think, I, and I do think Reagan's acting skills, uh, served him very well, it, 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 sometimes in profound ways, not just mm. in terms of uh, the way he presented himself. The, a lot of this uh, novel finale, uh, it, it's all set in 1986, and a chunk of it is, is set at that summit of um, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev uh, in Iceland in 1968, where they really came close to, uh, much to the astonishment of their foreign ministers, who they were getting way out in front of, they came very close to uh, abolishing nuclear weapons. And I, I, if anybody is here from the workshop I taught yesterday, I hope you'll forgive me for telling the same story. Uh, but if you go over the transcripts, uh, they're not exactly transcripts, but heavy notes from the session that the note taker took. When this is happening, this astonishing development, Reagan suddenly starts addressing Gorbachev by his first name. And he says, uh, you know, Mikhail, he goes, you know, uh, 10 years from now, we can come back here, bury the last nuclear weapon, and have a party for the whole world. And he said, you'll say to me, Ron, is that you? <laughs> and I'll say, Mikhail, it's good to see you. And, um, and I realized he was seeing it as a movie. Mm. And I... <laughs> but, but, I mean, we, we can laugh at that. And I yeah. do remember in the 80s laughing at, at, at the fact that he was a... Uh, an, a movie star who became a, a pitch man for General yes. Electric, fallen on hard times, and then washed up in politics. And yet, I've heard you say before that, that his sense for his, and his um, appreciation of the Hollywood ending, the end of the Cold War, yes. helped him out. I, I mean, I absolutely believe that. I mean, Richard Nixon was much better trained, uh, much, um, uh, a much harder worker at the presidency uh, than Reagan was. I mean, and, uh, Nixon, God knows, knew more about Soviet military capacities, you know, than Reagan did. He was a detail man. But Nixon did not have the kind of happy, sentimental imagination that allowed him to imagine a world without the Soviet Union. That was a, a step beyond where he could go. Reagan had no problem with that. I mean, when he was running for president, um, the man who became his national security advisor said, well, governor, you know, because he was... Uh, that was his title at the time. He said, Governor, why don't I start by asking you, what's your view of the Cold War? And Reagan said, well, we win, they lose. <laughs> and um, 
it, some of that was conditioned by the narratives he saw in mm. Hollywood, and it, it did serve him well, and may have even served the world well. You know, yeah. I mean, that's for historians to argue about. I don't really work a thesis in these books, um, you know, so much as just try to tell a story. One thing, one thing that, if you listen to interviews with, with uh, Thomas Mellon, is that he is a fantastic mimic. Like, <laughs> can we just applaud the Ronald Reagan? Because I think that is just really good. Now, I want to get, I know, I know you, you, you're sitting there, you're cringing in the darkness, it seems to be going fairly well, but I, I, I want to sort of break it up a bit, and this is the interactive section, uh, where I want to get into how Thomas builds characters, and I want him to tell us about uh, one of the, some of the characters he's, he's, he's created. But I want you, you, the audience, to pick the character. So I've got three, and because I, can't, I was going to say we'll turn the house lights up and we'll see your hands, I can't see your hands. So you've just got to, <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to, it's going to be by acclamation. If you can, can, can you give me an example of acclamation? So, all right, that's good, that's good. So there are three choices, all right? Number one, Nancy Reagan. Number, wait, 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 wait. Oh, you are trigger happy, the lot of you. Number one, Nancy Reagan. Number two, the journalist Christopher Hitchens, who animates the, 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 the book finale. And finally, uh, number three, the old reliable Richard Nixon. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, uh, I'll do number one first, and then the people who support Nancy, blah, 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 we'll go like that. Okay, so number one, Nancy Reagan. Okay, okay. fairly strong, fairly strong. Number two, journalist Christopher Hitchens. Ooh. <laughs> And number three, Richard Nixon. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna rate that for Christopher Hitchens. Does that seem I fair think to you? Hitch, the people's choice. Yes. The people's choice. So you um, you were telling me actually that uh, Christopher Hitchens helped you with some of the worst hangovers you've ever had uh, <laughs> because you knew him personally. And we talked a little bit about this with Howard Hunt. But how did you build the character of Christopher Hitchens as he appears in finale? Well, uh, I I met. Uh, Hitch in the 90s, but didn't really get to know him until well until I moved to Washington uh, about 13 years ago, and uh, and saw a lot of him in Washington. And uh, in fact, the Watergate novel is uh, dedicated to him. And uh, when I was starting this Reagan book, I was looking around for a chorus figure. Uh, in Watergate, it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt's ancient crone of a daughter, Alice Roosevelt, who was a very acerbic wit who lived in Washington until uh, she was in her 90s and, um, and was very much aware uh, of uh, what was going on uh, with Watergate, continued to see uh, Nixon and his wife as a friend, and she would say anything. Um, and uh, she was the one who had the, the pillow in her mansion that said, if you can't say something nice about somebody, come sit by me. And, um, and she's responsible for hanging on. Uh, you know, um, she was the one... Um, who's believed to have said that Coolidge, um, uh, Calvin Coolidge looked as if he had been weaned on a pickle. Uh, <laughs> Thomas E. Dewey was the little man on the wedding cake. And uh, Harding was just a slob. And, um, but I, I wanted somebody like that. And um, I uh, was getting this novel started right around the time that Christopher died. He died much too soon, at the age of 62, uh, late in 2011. And um, uh, I, it, it just occurred to me one day 
that um, he was sort of the opposite of uh, Alice. I mean, he was very acerbic and very funny, also very tender, very gentle. But um, uh, I, I didn't know him in the period of this book, the late 80s, but that was when he had arrived in the States. And he was a young uh, writer, and he was very betwixt and between. He was really um, sort of beginning to thread his way between ill-paying journalism uh, like The Nation and the little magazines and the New Statesman that he continued to write for and the glossy pages of Vanity Fair. Uh, he spends a lot of this book chasing uh, Pamela Harriman, uh, who's the woman with the quadrangular smile, uh, to do a profile uh, for Vanity Fair. Um, and he was coming out of his first marriage, uh, heading into a second one. He was trying to decide whether to make his home in the States or go back to Britain. So he's very betwixt and between uh, throughout the book. And um, and because he was a journalist, uh, it was easy for me to deploy him uh, in the action. I mean, I have him going off to the summit at Reykjavik uh, to write about it for the Spectator. He never actually did that. Uh, but it was reasonable enough to have him do something like that. And, um, and I had, you know, uh, he was such a voice. Mm. And so I, I got this, and, and he had an opinion about everything. He went to his grave loathing Reagan never, ever revised his opinion on that, despite his, you know, conservative apostasy during the George W. Bush years when he was a supporter of the Iraq war. Um, so I, I he, in, in a way, be, uh, filled that role. Mm. And I would sit down and I write, would write scenes for him. And, you know, I, if I thought really hard in the space of 15 minutes, I, I could sometimes come up with a line that was as funny as what he would have said in 15 seconds, you know, at the dinner table spontaneously. Yeah, he had that, um, he was extremely, extremely quick. And what I think what's interesting for, for people who have maybe seen the, um, the Christopher Hitchens of uh, YouTube debates about the existence of God and uh, his, um, just his public persona was that, in fact, in, in person, he was a very tender, gentle... Oh, very much uh, so. Do you, do you have any um, any rec recollections through the through the vodka haze of? Uh, <laughs> I don't mean yours. I, I mean his. no, it was mine. Um, I was the one who would be slurring by you know by dessert, yeah. and uh, and he would never flag. He would just keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but he was gentle. Um, uh, my partner Bill was not not as enamored of politics <laughs> as I am. He's a much quieter, gentle person. And I remember the first time years ago when he met Christopher for the first time, he was kind of terrified of meeting him because he, um, you know, he did have this, rep uh, this reputation for, you know, um, tremendous uh, argumentation. And uh, I remember the first time he came in the house and Bill's like a cat. He, ha he instantly sizes up people and he's invariably accurate. And uh, he was instantly comfortable the minute he went uh, in the door. And um, so uh, there were all of those sides of him. And he, you know, it, it, I mean, Alice in Watergate is really a flat character because she is really just a voice and a wit and a chorus character. Christopher serves those functions in the book, but he's drawn into the action because the characters are drawn to him because mm -hmm. he is warm and they come to depend on him. Mm -hmm. So all of, all of that uh, was... Um, uh, uh, useful to me, and um, and I, I would simply remember things he said. Uh, I mean, <laughs> put them back in his mouth. Uh, and I mean, he, I remember one time being out uh, after some bookstore event, and a group of people going out for dinner afterwards, 
And uh, he was arguing, uh, not arguing, but the, the, talking about Iraq, as everybody talked about in those days. And he made a point, and the woman who was sitting next to him, whom he scarcely knew, um, she said, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And she wasn't opposing him on the war. It was just she didn't want to talk about that facet of the subject. And so she just, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And he, he, just, he leaned back and he said, oh, I'm sorry that didn't hit your G-spot. <laughs> and I, you know, the wine sort of came out my nose. And I thought, well, who says those things? Uh, and, of course, he did. And yeah. so I thought, well, I'll have him uh, say that at a moment you know, in this book, but, um, but he was also, aside from being entertaining and uh, whatever, he was a very morally serious person. And um, he, uh, uh, I never heard him argue any side of an issue just in order to argue. Just for fun. Even, yeah, even though he was, you know, an absolutely champion debater. Um, uh, he never um, really argued for sport. There was always a, a moral basis for it. And of course, you, you, he came over to your place for dinner on uh, on several occasions. I wonder if you would just um, share the anecdote that we were, that you told me backstage about uh, when when you went down and you saw after he'd been oh, over yeah. for dinner. One morning we came back down the next day, and I sort of I took a line from a movie um, that I remember where a husband and wife come down uh, and they they see the remains of a party from the night before, and um, the wife says to the husband, should we sell that? Should we just sell the house? Uh, <laughs> it would be easier to, than to clean up. Um, but his parties, um, you know, I, I was, was also telling him, Washington's social life is surprisingly structured uh, compared to New York. Um, the dinner party, uh, more than the cocktail party, uh, people still wear ties when they go to people's houses for dinner. Uh, which nobody does in New York. and um, uh, But his parties, he used to give uh, a party at the White House Correspondence Dinner, which is the biggest social event in Washington uh, every year. It just took place a few uh, weeks ago, and it's uh, often called the Nerd Prom. Uh, uh, just as, you know, rock and roll for ugly people. And so um, it's the big event, and it takes place at the Washington... Um, Hilton, which is the hotel uh, where Reagan nearly lost his life, or it was right outside there that John Hinckley shot him. And um, Hitchens' uh, own apartment, uh, the Wyoming, uh, was up on uh, Columbia Road, and uh, there used to be a big party there. And you would meet everybody. It, it was a great mix of people um, and um, fun and funky and uh, unexpected in a way that, <clears throat> you know, uh, there really hasn't been uh, since since mm. he's gone, okay, yeah, those 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 sort of those figures, those adhesive figures that draw in all parts. There were mm -hmm. people, people. I was fortunate enough to know people like that in New York who would drink, draw in people from uptown, downtown, and mm -hmm. they would have the best parties. I'm just moving to the the hard work, the grit, mm -hmm. the determination, and also some of the details about about writing. I, I'm interested in because I think I think people. I suppose it's the sort of uh, the uh, the tabloid part of it. But where do you write? Do you write by hand? Have you got a word processor? Walk us through it. Walk us through a day of, of, of uh, Thomas Mellon sitting down to um, to go to work. Well, I do. Um, I still write a lot of nonfiction. I'm always reviewing. I write uh, pretty often for the New Yorker, frequently for the New York Times. Um, 
So I'm always operating as a critic. Uh, at the same time, I'm operating as a novelist. A lot of uh, my day uh, is spent researching, um, reading, going to libraries, looking uh, for things. I mean, one of the things, I, I don't really believe in writer's block. I, um, <laughs> I think it's, um, it's like a... Was it Munchausen syndrome or something? Um, I, I, oh, you're going to be popular at the cocktail <laughs> parties after, I, um, after that. But one of the one of the ways in which a historical novelist has it easier than a novelist who's writing about contemporary times and say writing a story about family dynamics or something is uh, you can always say, well, even if you don't know what you're going to write next in the book, you can always say, well, I worked on my book today because there's always more research to do. You know, um, I do write longhand. Um, which makes me, I think, fairly rare uh, these days. Uh, and I, um, I, I put a second draft into the computer, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I, I print a lot of them out. I cannot revise on screen. I just miss things, um, and uh, so I, I I wind up with this great stack of you have printed no, no materials. I have notebooks and um, lots of files, and I, I live in an old house in Washington. I live right across the street from the Watergate uh, in uh, Foggy Bottom. Uh, it's near the State Department, the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, it's an old house. It was uh, built in 1890. Uh, uh, the bricks are <laughs> pretty porous, and uh, it's got a little turret at you the top. You should have sold the house. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, my study is in this little rounded turret, and um, I, uh, you know, I spend uh, most of my uh, day there. And um, uh, it's uh, it's a very easy life. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, one of the things I wanted from historical fiction was not to have to write about my own life. You know, the way a lot of novelists displace or ref refract their life into the books they write. I mean, my life has always been so placid. I, I was astonished yesterday. I did the, the panel with uh, Gloria Steinem and Jan Eleven, and the fellow who introduced us, he, he pulled out this quote that I'd really forgotten about from some essay uh, I had written years ago, um, and uh, in which I described having had the kind of happy childhood that's so damaging to a writer. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, my adulthood's been fairly happy and placid, too, so I wouldn't dream that anybody would want to read about it fictionalized. So I go to these gaudy stories instead. And, and gussy them up. Well, you say that you do a lot of reviewing. How important, as a you know, sharpening your claws on the work of other writers, how does that help you uh, do your own work? It, um, you know, I was reviewing books before I was writing uh, novels. I came to fiction sort of late. I was in my uh, mid-30s when I uh, published my first novel, and I had been a regular literature PhD. I, was a, 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 I wrote a lot of scholarship. I, I taught literature at Vassar and so forth, and turned to fiction um, eventually. I, um, I do think that uh, <laughs> this too came up uh, in the workshop, that um, writing fiction... Uh, has probably made me a somewhat better critic because I know what it involves. And I, I don't make as many airy pronouncements about it as I did before I actually wrote it. You know, um, being a practitioner, I think, helps. Uh, I, I'm not sure that any um, uh, anything I do critically finds its way into the fiction very much. Uh, um, it's mostly 
in the opposite direction. So you're saying it's made you perhaps kinder and gentler? Well, I, some, you think? some people would differ, yeah. Do you uh, think Harper Lee would think that? Because there was um, a... Here we yeah. go. <laughs> Um, Thomas did a review of uh, the writer of, uh, of To Kill a Mockingbird, a biography of uh, Harper Lee, where he described what I think is America's most popular book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, it's the Americans most... routinely say second only to the Bible. Right. It's the book that... Right. He described it as a kind of moral Ritalin and um, <laughs> made... He, uh, he, he also noted the preponderance of dangling modifiers which is a, a real <laughs> grammatist stiletto in the, in the kidneys. How, what was the response to, to that review? Um, <laughs> bracing. Uh, the, um, it, this was uh, written for The New Yorker, and it, and it was a kind of long piece, and I, um, I didn't say it was a bad novel, <laughs> but um, I, I sort of, uh, and, and I, I, there's a, a dramatic version of it, I see, that's playing in so town. It's on at the Civic. Yeah. Would you like to review um, it? I, <laughs> but I, I did look at the movie to, uh, and read the book, reread the book at the same time, and um, I was struck by the way in which it was the opposite of most film adaptations, that um, usually the movie is much more broad than the book. Uh, it underlines things, it's, it's more sentimental, etc. And I would find passages of dialogue in the novel that the filmmakers had, in fact, pared down, made less sentimental, made less obvious, whatever. And um, so uh, I said these things. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the, the remark I remember that more than any uh, reader reaction though, was I, I was at the magazine uh, that day. I was up at the New Yorker offices when it was going into the first proof. Um, and I, I, I just was passing through, and I, so I figured I'll pick up the proof by hand. And um, the proof was handed to me by my editor there, and it was a very light edit, and uh, it was, wasn't much to do, uh, and all I remember him saying to me was, um, in his very soft voice, remind me never to give you the diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> 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 so. <laughs> What's, um, I guess that leads on to the next question. I mean, novelists need different well, they need a whole bunch of qualities, but there's, there's what I've noted in, in your work is the attention to detail, the, the imagination, and, and sympathy mm -hmm. for the characters. What do you think is the, is the most necessary quality that a novelist must have? I actually would say it's sympathy. That um, uh, in that, uh, even if you have a, a, a thoroughly unlikable character, um, you have to inhabit that character to um, an extent. Uh, and maybe it's just a question of empathy uh, more than sympathy. But uh, you have to do that um, even if the character is somewhat villainous. Uh, if you're going to write, I think, with any success from that character's point of view. I mean, this can be dangerous if you uh, prolong it, you know, and uh, suddenly, you know, I mean, John Wilkes Booth is in one of my books. And, you know, you, you can't think for too long about, God, that leg he broke when he leapt from the balcony that must have really hurt and um <laughs> after assassinating know, president Lincoln. yeah it yeah. can yeah it can you can carry this too far but i think that uh to try to um understand 
people if you're if you're trying to write them from the inside out you know in the what they call the close third person where you remain technically in the third person but you you know you're hearing that character's thoughts there's an overlay of the character's diction and rhythms and so forth you have to sort of be uh, the character uh, i mean it it's not too dissimilar from acting in a way and um and to to some extent you you, um, you have to uh, if you're going to be them uh, you have to be rooting for them because you have to we them. root for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Because I, know, I noticed that you know through through finale that the the way that you evoke Nancy Reagan, a combination of watchfulness, anxiety, ambition, hardness, indifference, but overwhelming love for Ronald, who is himself mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I, I felt that you know you'd really. How did you get inside inside Nancy? How did you become Nancy Reagan? Basically, how did you do it? The, <laughs> uh, she was um, formidable, and uh, the uh, was not everybody's um, cup of tea. There was a great brittleness uh, to her, um, and uh, I never much liked her at the time. Uh, at the time, it was all going on. Uh, the 80s and so forth, but um, I began to read um, her own memoirs, uh, where she surprised me by admitting that there were whole portions of Reagan, for all of their vaunted closeness, that she could never access. I mean, because I was struck by Reagan's remoteness, um, aside from his extreme dependence on her, and um, began uh, to think things through, to read a, a lot of from people who had known her, um, began to uh, watch her a lot, listen to her in interviews, watch some of her old movies. Uh, she too had been uh, in Hollywood, and um, then try to imagine uh, her. And I, um, uh, she was, uh, I don't think she had a relaxed 10 minutes in the White House. She was a raw nerve. Uh, and she was constantly tactical. It was all done to protect uh, Reagan. Uh, she had very good instincts about people, particularly the people who worked for him. She was very good at spotting who was out for himself and who was out to help her husband. And um, I just I began to think uh, a lot about her and um, to try to put her. Uh, it, one of the things she did, she was on the telephone constantly. The only person who was more plastered to the telephone in the history of the White House was probably Lyndon Johnson, who was always holding, you know, two of them at once while he was watching television. Uh, and uh, she was on the phone all the time. And um, I don't know if the name Merv Griffin means anything to people over here. He was a talk show host uh, in America and also a big kind of um, a creator of television programs, a big sort of successful uh, mogul, uh, sold his uh, entertainment company for quarter of a billion dollars back in the 80s. And he was a great enthusiast. And uh, he was, uh, guests loved to go on his program because they never ran into a rough moment. It was, Merv was always sort of leaning in and going, ooh, you know, whatever they said, ooh. Right? And um, he was close to um, Nancy Reagan. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll put the two of them together. What right. were those phone calls like? So Merv is on the phone a lot uh, in the book, you know, ooh, great speech. And uh, he and then you start to reassure her. And, start to yeah, she up. feels comfortable with him. Mm. And then there's a chance for her to let down her guard for a moment or two, whatever. And uh, so sometimes, sometimes you do uh, get to know a character 
um, or the character begins to uh, take on some life uh, when you put them Interac- uh, through another with character. somebody. Yeah. Okay, and I think what's what's really great too about the your work is that women often feature really strongly, and they play mm-hmm. very strong, uh, you know, very strong roles. And of course, Nancy Reagan was a strong woman, but perhaps the strongest woman was Margaret Thatcher. Um, and you have a, a great exchange meeting of Margaret Thatcher and Christopher Hitchens. And I wonder if you would be so kind as to to read for us. Uh, we want to hear Thomas Mellon read, right? We want to uh, want to know how it goes. So. Um, Please put us put us in the picture, okay. and uh... um, this will take a, just a small setup um, from uh, Hitchens' own memoirs. Um, he um, in the 1970s he met Mrs. Thatcher when she was the leader of uh, the Conservative Party, but uh, not yet the Prime Minister. And in his memoirs, Hitch 22, he talks about this meeting. Uh, with her. I mean, he was a journalist for magazines like the New Statesman at that point, and uh, he was only in his 20s. And um, he talks about how he had written a shorter piece for the New Statesman, he said, in which he uh, had said that he thought Mrs. Thatcher surprisingly sexy. Um, he said, and it was, he got more uh, angry mail over that than I got over Harper Lee. And, um, but he talks about meeting her. Um, being introduced to her at a party and uh, brought over to her. And uh, she knew who he was. Um, And so in Hitch 22, his memory says, almost as soon as we shook hands on immediate introduction, this is about 1975 or 6, I felt that she knew my name and had perhaps connected it to the Socialist Weekly that had recently called her rather sexy. While she struggled adorably with this moment of pretty confusion, I felt obliged to seek controversy and picked a fight with her on a detail of Rhodesia's Zimbabwe policy. She took me up on it. I was, as it chances, right on the small point of fact, and she was wrong, but she maintained her wrongness with such adamantine strength that I eventually conceded the point and even bowed slightly to emphasize my acknowledgement. No, she said, Bow lower. (laughs) Smiling agreeably, I bent forward a bit farther. No, no, she trilled, much lower. By this time, a little group of interested bystanders was gathering. I again bent forward, this time much more self-consciously. Stepping around me, she unmasked her batteries and smote me on the rear with the parliamentary order paper that she had been rolling into a cylinder behind her back. I regained the vertical with some awkwardness. As she walked away, she looked back over her shoulder and gave an almost imperceptibly slight roll of the hip while mouthing the words, naughty boy. <laughs> so, um, so that's the setup. <laughs> and, um, that's the setup for their, their meeting. This is a true and, story, yeah. yes. So um, M- Mrs. Thatcher came to Washington in November of 86, a few weeks after that summit uh, in Reykjavik. And... She was aghast that Reagan had almost made this deal to get rid of nuclear weapons with Gorbachev, uh, because from her point of view, um, nuclear weapons what had, were what had kept Europe free. Uh, if they were taken away, uh, the Soviets could roll over Western Europe with conventional forces. And so she was uh, spitting mad at Ronnie and uh, came to Camp David, and the only woman that uh, Reagan um, 
was more intimidated by in some ways than Nancy, whom he called Mommy, uh, was Mrs. Thatcher. So um, I have her um, uh, making her points with Reagan at Camp David and then coming back to the British Embassy, which is right next to the vice president's residence at the Naval Observatory in Washington. Uh, and she helicopters in with the ambassador, and I have her giving a press conference, which she actually didn't give, but Hitchens is there at the press conference, uh, and a spark of memory is struck uh, in her. Uh, the man from the telegraph, seated in the front row, smiled as he wrote on his pad. He would bet that she had cuffed Reagan around something awful this afternoon, no matter that she was making it sound as if there'd never been a shade of disagreement between them. The writer sitting next to him, the chap he'd met over in Reykjavik last month seemed to be thinking the same. Is it true, Christopher Hitchens now asked, that there was no note-taker at Camp David because the president knew you would get into a discussion of Iran? The Iran-Contra scandal is breaking open at this point. The prime minister prepared to mock the pseudo-knowingness of this question, which must be coming from the Guardian, or perhaps even worse, the new statesman. The man asking it looked handsomely familiar, but she could not place him, a failure that she knew would drive her response to a higher level of irritability. Worse still, she realized that the question's presupposition was correct. She herself often relied on notes she dictated only after a meeting had finished, but Reagan, except for today, had always had things written down. She decided to execute a simple, evasive maneuver. The president and I discussed as always, anything we cared to. As for Iran, I believe implicitly in the president's total integrity on that subject. She looked at her watch. Nothing had really gone amiss, but she had ceased to enjoy herself and was ready to conclude things. I'm sorry my stay in the United States will be so short, and almost sorry that my welcome has been so warm. I find nothing more soothing than falling asleep to the chance of protesters in the middle distance. But there have been none to be found here. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. One reporter asked, Will you be leaving before breakfast tomorrow? After. I have requested my usual from the ambassador, vitamins and black coffee. Acklin, gave, Acklin the ambassador, gave two staffers the signal to wrap things up. The pair set about ushering the reporters out, and as they went, Mrs. Thatcher had another look at the dark-haired man in the front row, recognizing him this time. She had once, as leader of the opposition, swatted him on the rear end with a sheaf of papers. He waved hello and then made a series of hand gestures to Ackland. Me? Her? Together? Two minutes? Ackland signaled back, sorry, out of the question. No, said Mrs. Thatcher, noticing the dumb show and overruling the ambassador. It's all right. Rather astonished, Ackland arranged for Hitchens to stand with the prime minister on a carpet in a hall outside the library. Off the record, of course, he stipulated. Yes, I do remember you, said Mrs. Thatcher. I even read you from time to time. I saw, for instance, what you wrote a week or so ago for The Spectator, quite colossally wrong, as if someone had taken the muddled thinking of the Foreign Office, turned it inside out, and managed to make it even more wrong. Hitchens was disappointed to notice that the teeth through which she was more or less smiling had been straightened since their last encounter. <laughs> He found their improved arrangement to be a dash less arousing than what he'd seen up close a decade ago when she'd briefly disciplined him. 
Are you pleased, Prime Minister, that everything in arms negotiations with the President is allowed to depend on hypothetical laser beams? Because that was what finally undid the attempt at getting rid of nuclear weapons. Reagan wouldn't get rid of SDI. I'm quite in favor of SDI, Mr. Hitchens. I simply don't believe that it will or should make nuclear weapons obsolete. I'm delighted that the Soviets are so preoccupied by it, so desperate to stop it. If you did indeed read my piece, Prime Minister, you would know what it says about a wasteful, dangerous militarization of space. Wasteful, perhaps, but an obliquely effective scheme for tilting the military balance back toward us. And yes, I shall continue my, quote, sub-Churchillian rhetoric, unquote, about deterrence, as I believe you called it. Hitchens thought, who needs the jagged teeth? Was there any arousal equal to what came from being quoted to oneself? <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher continued, In 1983, President Reagan told me that the Soviets would soon not be able to keep up the pace of the arms race, that their economic system wouldn't be up to it. He said the same thing again to me in 1984. We may actually be seeing that now. Build up to build down, said Hitchens. No, said the Prime Minister, build up to wear down. I am not in favor of discarding nuclear weapons within 10 years or 20, and that is not what the President proposed. Do you think he knows what he proposed? She stared at him more severely, as if he were an adolescent who just tried out a dirty joke. She would tolerate no talk of senescence or bewilderment. Met with silence, Hitchens continued speaking. Now that you've got this president back on the right path, are you prepared to deal with the next one? I discuss Mr. Reagan's political eclipse in my latest column. Perhaps I'll catch up with that one on the plane home. I'm sure it will prove useful. She slid her pocketbook up toward her elbow and waggled her empty hands. I'm afraid I'm unarmed today. She meant that she was carrying no roll of papers. It was thrilling that she remembered. Ackland led her to the library, but before they entered it, she turned back around. Mr. Hitchens. Yes. Do you know any astronomy? I know that there's an observatory next door where Mr. Bush gets a free house. Go have a look through their telescope. You will be reminded that eclipses are, by definition, temporary. <laughs> Okay, we've got about uh, nine minutes left. I just want to get into Donald Trump, and then we'll, uh, we'll throw... <laughs> I know, I know, it's too, it's, 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 it's too brief. I but thought I'd escape. I, 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 just, I want you to indulge me on a thought experiment. There's been... Ronald Reagan was seen internationally as a joke of a president, but he is now, I would say, probably the most beloved by, by Americans. Donald Trump is elected to the White House, an era of calm... Dominance and triumph for America ensues, and he leaves with the similar ratings that Ronald Reagan has now. How is this possible? Is it possible? Could it happen? What have you been smoking, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> Ronald Reagan may have starred in Bedtime for Bonzo, and he may have been um, uh, that GE theater host that you talked about. 
But he was also the president of a large union for many years. He wrote, thought, and breathed politics. I mean, Jane Wyman, his first wife, divorced him because he would never shut up about politics, even in the 1950s. Uh, as Reagan used to say to mommy's disappointment when the subject of his divorce came up from Jane Wyman, well, you know, she divorced me. The implication being <laughs> that he'd still be married to otherwise, which Nancy didn't like to hear. Um, and then, of course, he was the governor of the uh, not small state of California for eight years. Uh, he was perfectly prepared to be president of the United States. Um, one of the questions I got asked most often when I was out with this book in the States in the fall was, what would Reagan have thought of Trump? And it is a fool's errand, of course, to try to speak for the dead. I'm going to do it anyway. I think Reagan would have been appalled by Donald Trump. Uh, I think that uh, Reagan, um, the things that Trump says about women, uh, the recklessness, the sheer asininity uh, of it, um, uh, it it's unfathomable, this candidacy, to me. Uh, a week and a half ago, the morning of the Indiana primary, uh, Trump said that his opponent's father had been involved directly in the Kennedy assassination. I don't think it lost him a vote. That's, that's where we are right now. Um, he knows nothing. He's ideological, ideologically free. Um, uh, he is not going to surprise people. He is going to fulfill people's expectations if this happens. Um, I would say that my own greatest um, fear at the moment is that Ronald Reagan in 1980, when he was running, behind, running against Jimmy Carter, at this point in the electoral process, in the, I'm sorry, in the polls, at this point in the calendar, was much, much, much farther behind Jimmy Carter than Donald Trump is behind Hillary Clinton. Uh, I am a terrible prognosticator. Uh, so uh, I, <laughs> you know, I, uh, um, I would never make a prediction, but I, I do know that the odds of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States right now, uh, while still against him, are considerably higher than they were when he entered the race, uh, the odds of his winning the nomination. And he went on and did that. Mm. I, people have imagined this happening in fiction. Christopher Buckley, uh, the American novelist, who's son of William F. Buckley, the editor of National Review, he wrote a novel uh, uh, or story some years ago uh, in which he imagined, about 15 years ago, in which he imagined President Trump taking the oath of office. And the first line of his inaugural address was, this is a great day for me personally. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so Thank on you point, very much. so entertaining. And what about the voices? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you. Good. That was great. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.